the Bible reading this morning is from 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 1 to 28. And if you've got the blue Bible there, I believe it's page 173. If you don't have a Bible, please take that with you. That's our gift to you. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us, and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first, the Lord, uh, inquire first for the word of the Lord. And the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord, of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor, at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Kenaniah, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them, and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, son of Kenaniah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, 
how did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Amon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear, all you peoples. Thank you, Hugh. Well, uh, what a place to end. Hear, all you peoples. How about I pray so that we may hear? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. May we have open ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, some of the hardest conversations that my wife Robin and I uh, have uh, ever had in our marriage have been when we haven't agreed on something. Surprise, surprise. Or they've been when one of us has sought to uh, gently, lovingly bring something to the other's attention that needs to be addressed. Now, it's not easy to hear that uh, you sometimes zone out when your wife is talking to you and that she notices that and that she feels not particularly valued when you do that. That's, that's not an easy thing to hear. Well, it's one thing to hear difficult words from uh, people in general and especially people you love But what about when those words come from God? What do you do when God speaks, but you don't like what He says? This morning, uh, we're going to be thinking about exactly that in our passage. The word of those that Ahab listens to also find parallels in our own lives. And so, as you can see, uh, the sermon title is Pawns and Prophets, and so with our Bibles open, let's hear from God's Word this morning, beginning at point one, the Word of Pawns. Uh, my kids have been learning chess lately, uh, and they've learned uh, that the pawns are the, the front row of little guys, um, and you know, behind them are all the special ones, uh, and they really can't do much, you know. Uh, if chess were made up of real people, like in Harry Potter, then uh, I can just imagine the king, you know, just ordering the pawns around, and they just, you know, they just do whatever he wants. You go there, move forward, you know, and then, yep, they just do what they're told. I think it's a fitting image for what we see in this passage here this morning. As I mentioned last week, at the end of our uh, last chapter, the Lord recognized Ahab's humility in the face of his judgment, and so God delays his punishment. And we talk then about uh, how the reason that God only delays His punishment instead of removing it is because Ahab's repentance isn't uh, true, wholehearted repentance. Uh, And, you know, we see that lack of wholeheartedness here in this passage uh, in chapter 22. Uh, From verse 1, we see it's been three years since Ahab defeated defeated Ben-Hadad, and Israel continues to have peace. And so Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, uh, he comes down to visit him, and Ahab begins this conversation with him in verse 3. 
Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. Ramoth Gilead is a, is a city uh, that rightly belongs to Israel as part of the promised land. And interestingly, after Ahab defeated Ben-Hadad, we didn't uh, preach through this in our series in Kings, in chapter 20, uh, interestingly, Ben-Hadad actually promised to return the cities that his father had conquered back to the king of Israel. And Ahab releases him on those terms, on the condition that he will do that. So it seems like that deal hasn't actually come to fruition. After three years and so, you can understand why Ahab is perhaps a little bit annoyed about that fact. And of course, when that happens, what does any good king do? He goes to war. In verse 4, Ahab seeks to enlist Jehoshaphat's help. And Jehoshaphat, as we read, freely gives it. Everything I have is yours. Now, if you aren't aware, the Bible actually speaks generally pretty well of Jehoshaphat. Uh, he certainly was not perfect, but in verse 43, later in this chapter, we see uh, that he's described as somebody who did right in the sight of the Lord. He's, he's, he's actually one of the very few good kings that, that Israel and Judah had. And, and so given what we know about Ahab, about the fact that he was, the, the Bible repeatedly tells us that he was the worst of the worst of the kings of Israel, it's totally reasonable for you to be wondering why on earth Jehoshaphat would go to war with Ahab. How is it that somebody who is a good king thinks that it's a good idea to form an allegiance and fight alongside the worst king? Well, like I said, he wasn't perfect. And actually, the parallel account of this story, which is found in 2 Chronicles 18, actually tells us that Jehoshaphat made a marriage alliance with Ahab. And that Ahab actually induced him to go up against Ramoth-Gilead together. So you could see that there's, there's probably a little bit of, uh, you're not sure that whether Jehoshaphat knew that this was going to be a bad idea, but perhaps he felt bad because he'd married into the family, and now, you know, uh, Ahab is enticing him to do this. But we know that it's uh, seen as a bad idea, because Jehu later on in Second Chronicles 19.2 says, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? pretty clear that this was just one of the blunders that Jehoshaphat made. And yet, despite this, Jehoshaphat shows us in our, in our passage that his heart truly is for the Lord. Let's read uh, verse 5. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, inquire first for the word of the Lord. Before we do this, before we, we, we go in, into battle against them, let's find out first what the Lord has to say. Jehoshaphat knows that even the best laid plans, even if you might seem to have the, the stronger army, the, the upper hand, such might, such strategy is useless unless the Lord is with you. You can bet that uh, Jehoshaphat knew about how even Pharaoh, the most powerful king in the ancient world, was no match for the Lord when he delivered the Israelites from Egypt. 
And I'm sure he was probably familiar with the many times that God was the sole reason that defied logic that Israel won the battle. I'm sure he was familiar with uh, the story of Israel defeating the Amalekites whenever Moses' hands were raised. Uh, and, And if they were down, then they would start losing. So they decided to prop up his hands. I'm sure he was familiar with the story of the Israelites marching around Jericho and simply blowing trumpets and the walls falling down. I'm sure he was familiar with Gideon defeating an entire Midianite army with only 300 men. He knew that if the Lord was not with them, then going up to war against Ramoth Gilead was a fool's errand. So Ahab obliges in verse 6, and he brings together the prophets, 400 of them. Does that number look familiar to you? In 1 Kings 18, Elijah called for the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat of Jezebel's table. And in that showdown on Mount Carmel, only 450 of them showed. What happened to the other 400? Well, the text doesn't explicitly say this, but I think the number of prophets in our passage this morning is recorded here intentionally to let us know where the missing prophets went. Here they are. And one of the reasons that I think we can be confident of this is because of the prophet's response in verse 6 to Ahab's question. Have a look at it there. They say... The right one. They say, go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Now, here is, here is one of the few times where our English translations, uh, unfortunately, might cause us to miss something crucial here. Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. We, we hear Lord, and we just think, yeah, that, that just means God. But the word here for Lord is actually not the same word that Jehoshaphat used when he asked about inquiring of the word of the Lord. In our translations, when we see the word Lord capitalized, it is referring to God's name in Hebrew, which is Yahweh. And so here, the 400 prophets, when they respond to the king, what they're actually, the word that they're using here is the Hebrew word Adonai, which is just a generic term for the word Lord. And interestingly, in First Chronicles, uh, 2 Chronicles 18, it records them as saying, uh, God, with the Hebrew word Elohim, will give, you, uh, into, give it into the hand of the king. And so either way, the point is clear. You, you, you know when you, um, have you ever said something that, that perhaps you didn't mean to say or you weren't quite sure that you were going to say it, and, and the moment the word comes out of your mouth, you know, the expression on the person's face that you're looking at tells you, uh, uh, that was probably not a good idea. <laughs> Shouldn't have said that. Well, I can picture that being what happened here. Jehoshaphat, he he wants to hear a word from the Lord, from Yahweh, but these phony prophets have just unmasked themselves as the the false God-worshipping prophets that they are. They don't know the Lord. They don't speak on His behalf. And so, Jehoshaphat asks, "Is is there not here... Another prophet of the Lord, of whom we may inquire, of Yahweh? 
You can, you can just hear the emphasis, can't you? You know, he, he, he doesn't care about how many of these prophets there are, about the fact that there are hundreds of them all saying great things and they're all very loud and confident. What Jehoshaphat wants to know is whether they speak for Yahweh, for the one true God. Yeah, that sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Strength in numbers, we say. And that's true not just for war, but also for in what we believe. We like to uh, cite scientific studies and opinion polls and survey data when we want to prove a point and to make a case. I remember being, uh, doing some teaching rounds in a school and, and the principal saying that the thing that was hammered is we just, we need the data. Somebody give me the data. And, you know, sometimes the numbers are right and we ought to trust in them. But we can all too easily trust in them and think that, that that settles the case for us. Not only that, we can all too easily manipulate those numbers to make them say what we want. Well, there are 51,000 people who like the Flat Earth Society's Facebook page. And 51,000 people can't be wrong, right? We use numbers to bolster our bias to confirm our cause, to push our plans. You do this, don't you? Perhaps even without realizing it, you look for backup to, to give a more, f- and, and, you, and you seek that amongst the people, amongst your friends, and you give a more favorable hearing to those who are more likely to agree with what you want. You're far more likely to, to, to give them a, a, a really, you know, good interaction if they're agreeing with you. When you have a belief or, a, or an agenda which you believe is right, then you, you start looking for those people. And when you've got a, a big enough cohort of people who a, agree with you and, and you feel generally pretty sure about what you think, then you say, well, surely the five of us can't be wrong in this. This is especially true, especially something that we do when we're in conflict with people. We seek to build an army of people who are on our side and begin to feel like anyone who isn't for us is actually against us. And we certainly do the same when it comes to matters of our own sin that we don't want to give up and false beliefs that we don't want to change. Paul describes this to Timothy in the fourth chapter of his second letter to him as those who have itching ears, as those who, because they want to continue on in what they, whatever they want, they surround themselves with teachers who are going to tell them what they want to hear rather than what the Word of God actually says. Well, Ahab certainly had the ultimate army of yes prophets. 400 of them all agreed that surely the Lord would give Ramoth Gilead into his hand. Just just for a second, imagine the sound of all that brown nosing. Just hundreds and hundreds of those voices yelling out the same thing and him basking in all of that 
wonderful affirmation. Yeah, the, modern, the modern equivalent of that, that these days surely is the comment section on social media. We, don't, we, we love it, don't we? We love the, the outpouring of affirmations in all of the comments. But Jehoshaphat sees right through it. And he requests an actual prophet of Yahweh. And Ahab's response says it all. What does verse 8 say in our Bibles? The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imlah, but I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. I hate him. I hate that guy. I've blocked him on Instagram. If you want to know what someone looking for yes prophets would say, here it is. What's, what's Ahab's central concern here? It, it's pretty clear, isn't it? All he wants to hear is good stuff about himself. Don't, don't say anything bad about me. I reject that. I don't care about the truth. I just want to hear what's going to puff me up. That's what's going to make me feel good. I just want people around me who are going to tell me what I want them to tell me. Ahab, man, he was into postmodernism before it was cool. Jehoshaphat, thankfully, was not the same. And he seems to gently correct the king here in verse 8, encourages him to value the word of the Lord regardless of whether it is favorable to him or not. So Ahab seemingly begrudgingly says, all right, summons an officer to fetch Micaiah quickly, maybe because he just he wants it over and done with so he can just, you know, go to war. And then we see this, this rather interesting description of the kings in verse 10. The narrative breaks in and, and, and gives us this description. Let's have a read of it from verse 10. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat the king of Judah were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. Right here in the middle of the story, it just, it stops and then just tells us this, right? He's painting a picture for us. Here are the kings sitting in their royal splendor, sitting on their thrones, majestic, at the threshing floor, where, which was a common place for assemblies and gatherings to be held, surrounded by their, their 400 prophets and who knows how many other officials and servants. It's a picture that is painted of, of kingly majesty, of, of regal sovereignty, of great power. Now, just, just keep that image in your mind as we continue, because it's there for a reason. Now, let's pick it up again from verse 11. Zedekiah, the son of Chenana, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, wait, I'll come back to that. Do you know, do you know something uh, different now about this prophecy compared to, uh, compared to the previous one? That's not supposed to look like that. I'm sure I changed it. That's meant to have capital L-O-R-D. 
You won't be able to notice it there, so just look at it in your Bibles. <laughs> in verse 11. You notice that Zedekiah, he's, he actually says, he, he switches what he says. He, he doesn't say Adonai this time. He actually says Yahweh. He says, yeah, the, the Lord, that, that's right, that one, the one you mentioned. He's the one who's telling you that go and you will, you will win this battle. These horns of iron are, are actually likely uh, uh, from the, uh, the, the headdress that the prophet, the, the prophet, the false god Baal, Hadad, was often depicted as. He often had the, the head of a bull, or, or if not, he had a helmet that had horns. And so it's quite likely here that actually what Zedekiah has done has uh, merged his religions together to get the result that he wants. As we've just said, as you can see, Zedekiah is seeking to find, grab hold of, grasp whatever he can in order to say whatever he wants to say. If at first you don't succeed, lie, lie again. In Ahab's court are yes men as far as the eye can see. And, you know, it's, it's not just in his gaggle of prophets, right? Verse 13 shows us that his messenger is exactly the same. Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of, the, of one of them and speak favorably. <laughs> Do you hear what he's saying? As he goes to get Micaiah, he says, look, man, I know you're a prophet and all, but, but 400 prophets can't be wrong, Right? You, you, you know, don't, don't be a downer. Like, just don't be the wet blanket. You, you, you don't want to be that guy who, who goes against the grain and who, you know, who, who just, everybody's all so pumped up. We're all stoked about it. We're ready to go to war and you're just going to come along. Don't, don't be that guy, please. Just don't say anything bad. I wonder how you feel about that guy. You know, once you've gotten that momentum, once you've gotten the, the army to back you up, to say, to, to you know, help encourage you in the, in the path that you want to take, how do you feel about that person who just comes along and torpedoes that plan that you're just now so invested in? How ready and willing are you to have your plans, your thoughts, your assumptions interrupted? James 4, 13 to 16 is a passage that many of us became more acquainted with last year when COVID-19 first began wreaking havoc on all of our plans. And my family was in the US and I was doing an internship at a church there and COVID gutted that internship completely, not completely, but it gutted it of, of lots of the really, really cool stuff that we were really looking forward to. Not only that, Robin, and, and all the, the plans of visiting every museum in D.C. and all the other you know, great things that she was hoping to do, n none of that ended up happening. As James reminds us in that passage, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You see, we generally don't like this kind of thing. Regardless of where it comes from, if we're on a plan, if we're set, if we know what we're doing, if we want to do that, 
we don't like interruptions to that. But you know, far more significant than someone coming along and challenging our thoughts and our plans is when God comes along and does that. You see, I, I, I get it. Sometimes a person really is just a wet blanket. You know, sometimes people just oppose your thinking for the sake of it. They aren't necessarily voices worth listening to. But the one voice, but the one voice that we must always listen to is His. The Lord's voice is the one that matters. The Lord's voice is the one that changes everything. And His is the one whose word always trumps everything. And that brings us to point two, the word of prophecy. Now, I just need to clarify a term here before we continue. You see, many people think of uh, telling the future when we talk about prophecy. We we use the word that way um, commonly. It, It certainly can mean that. But when I say prophecy in this point, I'm not referring to whether someone can accurately predict what is going to happen in time that has not yet passed. Now, I'm talking about whether somebody speaks the actual words of the Lord or not. The 400 so-called prophets that Ahab loved to surround himself with, they only claimed to speak on behalf of the Lord. But they did not actually speak on his behalf. Enter Micaiah. Let's read verse 14. As the Lord lives. What the Lord says to me, that I will speak. As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. Micaiah, he wasn't concerned at all about who said what, about whether it was the popular opinion or not, and whatever the consequences of what he said would be. He actually uses a very similar oath that Elijah used in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, when he was speaking on the Lord's behalf. He calls an oath on himself as the Lord lives. I will not do anything else. You see, that is the true definition of a true prophet of the Lord. That is a definition of true prophecy one that speaks it, one that happily holds to it, regardless of the consequences, regardless of what the opposing views might be. And so if there's any word that you must pay attention to, if there's any word that you must change your thoughts or your plans or your opinions in light of, it is surely the word of the Lord. But as we've seen, that's not how Ahab thinks, is it? And so when Micaiah comes before him in verse 15, he asks him the same question. And perhaps surprisingly to most of us, as we've been reading this story, Micaiah seems to agree with the prophets of Baal. Go up and triumph! The Lord will give it to the hand of the king. Hang on, what? Well, Ahab doesn't buy it, does he? Let's read verse 16. The king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? It's pretty clear, isn't it, that uh, 
Ahab knows Micaiah isn't telling the truth. Again, the the text doesn't tell us, we we don't know for sure, uh, but I think Micaiah intentionally made it quite clear, perhaps even sarcastically, said to Ahab, uh, yeah, go up and do it, sure, to make a mockery of the other so-called prophets and their false prediction. That's, that's why Ahab knew. That's why he was able to say immediately, come on, man, tell me the truth. That's actually what I want to hear. And so Micaiah readily tells him exactly that word in verse 17. So all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master, let each return to his home in peace. Ahab will die in battle. And the sheep will scatter. They will be helpless and aimless. You might recognize this image. Matthew uses it in Matthew 9, 36, talking about Jesus. But this is actually a a very common theme right throughout Scripture. It begins in Numbers 27, 17, and it is picked up here in this passage, and then it's developed in various other places throughout Scripture. Psalm 23 being an obvious one, the Lord is my shepherd. But perhaps most notably, uh, Ezekiel 34 Uh, is one of the most well-known places where this image is picked up, where Ezekiel describes the leaders of Israel as shepherds who have failed to actually look after the sheep. And of course, this beautiful picture climaxes in Jesus pointing out that He is the good shepherd, the one who lays down His life for His sheep. It is a magnificent theme of Scripture uh, that, uh, unfortunately, I don't have time to unpack here this morning, but I point it out for you so you can go and study that for yourself. After Micaiah reveals this truth, of course, Ahab responds the way that we would expect him to, don't we? Doesn't he? In verse 18. Didn't I tell you, Jehoshaphat? I told you. I hate that guy. He only ever says bad stuff about me. You know, it would have been better if we, if, we just, if we just never consulted him in the first place. It would have been better if we just gone, let's, you know, the confidence of these prophets telling us we're going to win, we should have just gone in the, in the hype of that, you know, rush of blood to the head. You see, it didn't matter to Ahab what Micaiah said. In fact, it probably wouldn't have even mattered how he said it. Ahab's heart was hard. And he'd made up his mind about what he wanted to believe. His ears were not ready or able to hear. Man, I'm so glad that none of us are like that these days, right? I mean, I I don't know about you, but I never stubbornly refuse to hear hard truth. I, I never build armies or surround myself with yes-men in order to confirm my plans. I, I, I'm, I'm always, always ready to hear what the Lord has to say, and I am ready to change what I believe, even if it's against what I actually want. In case you missed it, I was being sarcastic. Sarcastic. 
injecting a bit of that Micaiah sarcasm into that last statement. Don't we all struggle with this? Isn't it the very nature of sin? That was the first temptation in the garden, that we would much rather be told what we want to hear, not what the truth actually is. Such confusion is, is even more on display in our world today as we move further and further away from an understanding of truth that finds its basis in God, the giver of truth. Most often we hear these days that your truth is truth. And so our society is now trying to build itself on the idea that every other person outside of you should bend and conform to your truth, whatever that truth may be, regardless of whether that truth might be on a collision course with actual truth. Now, as a Christian, you might say a, a hearty amen to that, as you should. But the culture wars in our society aren't our biggest concern. Our biggest concern is our own hearts. Paul's warning to Timothy doesn't just apply to the heretical church down the road that so obviously is surrounding itself with teachers who say what they want to. The danger lurks in every church, in each of us. And so, brothers and sisters, we must be constantly vigilant in seeking to hear not the praises and the affirmations of yes men and those who will continue to make us feel like we're on the right path regardless of the truth. But what we need is the loving and the truthful admonition of brothers and sisters in Christ. What do you do when God speaks but you don't like what He says? How do you respond when God speaks? But it's not a word that you want to hear. Our church is actually in quite a good position for us to put this into practice. We're not even a year old yet. And for many of us, our experience of a church with the kind of ecclesiology that we have, that is the, the kind of understanding of what the church is, is very different to what most of us have experienced, to what is common in churches in Australia. And not only that, but because we're a church plant that has, that has afforded us the opportunity to try things out and to see how those things go. And so I know because... I've had conversations with many of you that there have been some things that we do here at Emmaus Road that are, that are different to what we're used to, and they are occasionally challenging. But as we bear with one another in love, as Colossians enjoins us to, as we seek unity in the local body of, of, of Christ in our church, let me urge each of us including myself, to continue to seek the word of the Lord in this. Not the word of horns and false prophets, but his word. See, if we don't, we will fracture over personal preferences. If we don't, we will fail to hear where others are coming from. 
Now, believe me, I know how hard this is. I've had to continue learning and growing in this area myself as much as the next person. I preach this to myself as much as I do to you. And yet to fail to seek the word, if we cannot do that, if we don't do that, if we do not inquire of the Lord in each of these things, we'll only ever just continue to surround ourselves with yes men. But I know what you're thinking. Where's the prophet? How do we figure this out when there, there aren't any infallible prophets walking around today who can just speak on behalf of the Lord? You know, how great would it be if we had a prophet's hotline that you could just call up and you knew for sure that they were speaking uh, on behalf of the Lord and say, hey, Micaiah, help us out with something here. I mean, that would be excellent. But sadly, such a hotline does not exist. The only sure foundation that we have today is the Lord's Word given to us in the Bible. And as we all know, everyone's got different views about what the Bible says. Not only that, there is is a stack of stuff that we need to figure out, that we need to continue to work through and, and decide that the Bible doesn't directly speak to. Last I checked, it didn't tell me whether I should live in Darwin or not. So how do we remain humble before one another? How do we seek the word of the Lord and not just the word of our own preference? Well, allow me to give us a few pointers for navigating this with one another. Firstly, in everything, continue to always remind yourself that your inquiry is first and ultimately of the Lord. First and ultimately of the Lord. Hearing the Lord's word is our top priority. Be like Jehoshaphat and not like Ahab in this. You see, if you find that you, that you don't like it when someone opposes your view, if you start to get a little bit angry or, or you start to think to yourself, man, I hate that guy, simply for challenging you or for telling you something that you don't like, then that is shades of Ahab. Seek the counsel of those who will continue to point you back to the Word in all things. And not only that, I ask also, how? How have you come to the understanding of what you do about the Lord's Word? You see, that point is crucial, you see, because you, uh, you can easily go to Twitter and find IFB sermon clips, and you'll find that people can easily draw and quickly draw hasty conclusions from the Bible without actually really pressing in to understand what it says. Especially if you've already invested in the outcome. I'm sure you'll, you know, any of us can find verses in the Bible to twist to say what we want. It's pretty easy to make a horn, a a helmet of iron horns out of the Bible. Well, that brings me to my second pointer. If you're speaking with a brother or sister in Christ, someone who genuinely seeks to hear the word of the Lord, somebody who genuinely wants to, with you, hear and obey God, then be humble and patient. 
be humble and patient. Seek to understand what they believe first before sharing what it is that you believe about what Scripture teaches. Go to the Word together with a common desire to hear the Word of the Lord and to be faithful to Him. Not to, not to try and win the argument or to ultimately get your way. You see, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are in the same team. We're on the same army. The armies that we build are not against one another. And so if that is the case, if, if we have the common goal of seeking to hear the word of the Lord, then the brother or sister that, is a, that, you, need to, that you are talking to, who is speaking the truth to you, they're not doing it because they're trying to shoot you down. They're doing it because they're trying to say, we're on this together. I had the great joy of doing this this week with Trav as we discussed our church's practice of communion. He had some concerns, so we talked about them, we, we listened to one another, and then we went to the Word and discussed relevant passages in the Bible. We sought to understand each other as much as possible, but most importantly, our goal in that whole conversation was to honor Jesus, to seek to hear Him clearly, and to be faithful in our obedience to Him. Did we come to common agreement after that conversation? I don't know, actually. Maybe. But we have the same goal of hearing the word of the Lord truly, and we will continue to patiently point one another to it, understanding that this is not a person that I ought to hate because he disagrees. That is true humility. You see, our culture can make us a bit confused about humility. These days, if someone uh, says to you that you should be humble, that often means what they're saying is, uh, you, you need to keep listening to me and be humble and learning until you agree with me. But as Christians, <laughs> that's not the way. Humility for us means saying with John the Baptist in John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. A Christian who grows in loving the truth of God cares less and less about whether they have won the argument and more and more about honoring Christ. And inversely, they also care less and less about trying to please everyone and more and more about pleasing Christ. I mentioned this last week briefly, but I'll mention again specifically to do with this point. Please pray for our elders. We are the ones tasked by God through His Word, who are responsible for the teaching of it in our church. Pray that we would seek to be faithful to God first as we seek to faithfully shepherd all of you. And please, just as Trav did, continue to come to us with questions or concerns in the Word, being willing to, to challenge us in the Word. Because not only will we have to give an account for the things that we have taught, we seek great, greater faithfulness. That is all we desire to do. But also you will have to give an account for the teachers that you have surrounded yourself with. Don't be afraid 
of raising issues of concern regarding the teaching of our church. Finally, last pointer, where issues are more fuzzy, where they're perhaps not as clear in Scripture, allow charity and seek clarity. Allow charity, seek clarity. The further away you get from clear teaching of the Bible, the harder it is to know exactly what it teaches. And so, as we find ourselves in this fuzzy kind of territory, the more charitable we need to be. But you know, that shouldn't be the end. It's not like we say, okay, that's great, and leave it there. Simply because it's harder to come to agreed conclusions on these matters that are, that are less clear, or perhaps because many faithful Christians have disagreed about many things over the years, that doesn't mean that we should give up the pursuit of seeking clarity. To paraphrase the 17th century Bishop John Davenant, it is our duty to assume the best of our brothers and sisters, and to assume that the reason that they disagree with us is because of conscience and not because of stubbornness. Seek clarity, because God is glorified in our communal pursuit of His truth. That's the goal, isn't it? Which of us really wants to say with Ahab, I hate that guy, because even if he's speaking the truth, it's always bad for me and I don't like it. None of us desires that. And yet the reality is, so often that actually is us, isn't it? So often it is what we continue in. And were it not for God's gracious providence, that's exactly where we would all remain. And that brings me to my final point, the word of providence. Micaiah continues his prophetic word by giving us a rare glimpse into God's heavenly court. Let's have a read from 1 Kings 22, 19. And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on His throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing beside Him on His right hand and on His left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Have you still got that image of the kings in their splendor in your mind? Well, you can now dial up that splendor to off the scale. And the image that you get is this one. Do you notice the parallel? Here are, here are a couple of earthly kings that are looking pretty flash with all their pawns around them and their robes and their thrones. And yet, 
their kingly glory pales in comparison. In comparison to the king of all glory, the one who sits on the throne with all the hosts of heaven surrounding him. The true king, the Lord, the one who alone names Ahab in this passage without calling him a king. He is the sovereign king. There is a stunning escalation of the kingly court here. You know, the yes prophets, they might think that they're doing Ahab's will because he's a great king. And yet ultimately, they're doing God's. The sovereign king. God's divine providence rules over all of heaven and earth. All of the creatures in it and over all time. Even a lying spirit, one that is in no way in allegiance with God, is still used to carry out God's purposes. Now, some people find this difficult to believe, perhaps even unbelievable. And yet we see evidence, evidence of it all over the Bible, from, from Adam to Pharaoh to the very ones who crucified Jesus, and even to those who tried to stir up trouble for Paul and yet ended up proclaiming the gospel. God achieves His good purposes even through the actions of sinful people. This is something to bear in mind because it doesn't mean that sinful people get off the hook. As we saw last week, Ahab was judged for his wickedness, for selling himself to evil. But the point is that it it once again cements the truth that God's Word will accomplish what He wants it to accomplish. He is the one who speaks the word of divine providence. And that is so clearly on display as our passage finishes. Zedekiah tries to challenge Micaiah about why suddenly he's the real prophet. How did it go from me to you? Micaiah pronounces judgment on him in verse 25. We don't actually hear exactly what happens to Zedekiah in the Bible, but this is likely a reference to the siege of Samaria in 2 Kings 6. And then after this, Ahab locks Micaiah up with only bread and water, meager rations. And humorously, to those of us who know how the story pans out, says to his son, Joash, Keep him here until I return in peace. That statement alone proves that Ahab still believes the 400 brown noses. He thinks he's going to win and come back. But the Lord's word is proven by whether it happens or not. And that's exactly the challenge that Micaiah finishes with. If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear all you peoples. Talk about putting your money where your mouth is, in front of all those people. That's the proof. And if you read just a few verses later, you'll see how God's providence brings about His Word in verse 34 of chapter 22. I love this. But a 
certain man drew his bow at random and just somehow managed to get the king in that narrow band of no armor. And it is from there that Ahab dies. God is sovereign over all creatures, over all people, people, over all events, and over all time. And without His sovereign grace, we would never turn to Him. And that brings us to the pointy end of all of this. If the Lord does indeed speak the truth, and if He is indeed the one whose word is sovereign, His word is true, why would you persist in resisting Him? We read about Ahab's resistance to the Lord's word, and we we scoff and we laugh and we think, what a fool! And then how often do we find comfort in our own thoughts, not caring about whether they're going to align with God's or not? Yes, prophets are going to tell you what you want to hear, but ultimately they will tell you that to your doom. And they won't care whether it is true or not. Now, I get it. If you, like Ahab, you think that uh, God's Word is just all bad things, you know, like telling you that you're a sinner and that you've fallen short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death, and that following Jesus means suffering and persecution and sacrifice. I can see why you might not be terribly excited about that. I I hate that gospel. I don't like that. And yet to see only that in the message of Jesus is to see less than half the truth. And God loves you enough to confront you with the truth, to confront you with the true word about your fallenness, about your brokenness, about your sinfulness, about the fact that you are so far separated from His glory. He loves you enough to tell you about your eternal doom if you choose to reject Him. And yet He also loves you enough to provide a Savior who is the truth as John 14, 6 tells us. The one who would live the perfect life that you could never live. The one who would die a death on a Roman cross in your place and be raised again to life so that you may be raised with Him. For every single one who repents and trusts in Jesus, God promises His promise, His good, faithful, true promise Sovereign promise in Romans 8.28 is that all who turn to Him, in the end, everything will work together for good. It might not be the good that you imagine. It might not be the good that you think that you want. It might not be the good that you think you deserve. But because God is sovereign and trustworthy and true, it will be good. And that good is is life, true life in Christ, both now and in eternity. 
It is peace and joy in knowing Him. It is rest for your soul. Because of an ability to trust your entire life, every single moment of every single day. In the hands of a God who will not fail you. Whose providence rules over all things. And whose goodness and love has come to you in Christ and displayed on the cross. Even if it means getting thrown into prison and being given meager rations for the rest of your days, God's promises are good. Friend, do not trust in pawns. Do not seek and put your trust in lies and half-truths masquerading as truth. Turn from your sinful attraction to false words that, that feel good. And grab hold of the one who is truth. The one who gives us his truth in his word. The one who has revealed his great love and goodness in his gospel. Cling to him. He is the only way. It is only in Him that our souls may find rest and peace. One of the areas that Robert and I disagreed in that had the potential to be quite devastating in our marriage and in our lives was in our faith. Both of us grew up and were converted in Pentecostal churches. And as we began to dig deeper into the Word of God and began to find that some of the things that we'd been taught growing up were different to what the Bible taught. Despite the fact that both our families are strong Pentecostal families, lots of people who profess faith and who continue on in that stream, being surrounded by many, we were confronted with the choice. We either continue on, and continue to listen to the many numbers of people in our lives and the churches that we grew up and the people that we loved with whom we would disagree, or would we seek the word of the Lord as revealed in His word? I'm enormously thankful for the grace of God in both of our lives in this. As we have continued on this journey to continue to seek the Lord. To continue to understand His truth in His Word. And it is something that continues today. We continue to have these conversations. We continue to go to the Word. Each of us has the choice to either, either value the words of pawns and affirmers or the word of 
prophecy and providence. The word of the Lord. How will you respond to his word? Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, minds to be shaped and humbled by your word. Lord, I pray that your spirit would do that in each of us so that we do not resist your will. Do not resist you, but instead run to you with glad hearts, with joy and peace, delighting in the fact that you have spoken and that through your word you have saved. May that continue on for each of us for the rest of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.